I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Was that a mastodon or a mammoth? I don't know either. But if it's a mammoth, uh, we can now recreate them with genetic engineering. Their fur has been collected from the ice, and the DNA in there is intact, and the idea is to uh, collect some of that, blend it with elephants, work it down until you have a mastodon embryo, mammoth embryo, bring it to term in a lady elephant, and they're back. Talk about running the clock backwards. Also in the Bay Area, a couple of months ago was a meeting at UC Berkeley. I forget what the title was, but the subject was applied history, basically addressing the idea that what if policymakers actually talked to historians when they made decisions? They talk to economists and get misled. <laughs> they talk to themselves in terms of what they learned 40 years ago in high school about history and imagine everything in terms of it's either Munich or a man on the moon, and the one is to be avoided and the other is to be sought. But uh, real life is seldom like that, and so they make bad decisions because they never talk to historians. And so we had a gathering of historians to think through what historians might bring to the policy-making process. One of those speakers will be coming later in the summer, Frank Gavin, talking about six ways to learn from history. And one of them is here tonight. Um, Nils Gilman was trained as an historian at Cal. I've worked with him not only on that conference, but on many things that we've done at Global Business Network. And what I think is exceptionally interesting is that when people think about global business, and for that matter, network, um, they think about the thing you read about in the paper, where the numbers are kept track of, and we've got a sense of things are going up or going down. But it's sort of like overlooking the billion people who live in squatter cities and slums. And a few years ago when Rob North came through and talked about squatter cities, that was like, whoa, there's a whole nother civilization scale metabolism going on out there that we are not bearing, taking into account. Well, Nils Gilman has something like that for you tonight. Please welcome him. Thank you all for coming. Is my mic on? Good. Okay. Um, well, in the, uh, in the interest of trying to contextualize this talk, um, let me talk a little bit about where I came to these set of ideas from to begin with. Um, my first book, which came out about seven years ago, was an intellectual history of something called modernization theory. From about the 1940s through the 1970s, modernization theory was the kind of dominant framework that U.S. foreign policy makers and foreign policy intellectuals used to think about what they hoped they could achieve in what they called the third world and what I'll today be referring to as the global south. Um, modernization theory argued that um, the goal of development, both normatively and empirically, was for other countries to essentially emulate the historical path of the United States. Um, the idea was that if we encouraged um, each individual country to uh, create... Um, a strong public goods-providing 
welfare-providing uh, industrial democracy, this, this would eventually create an international community of like-minded states who would compete uh, at a business level, but would be bound together um, in a kind of actualization of Kant's um, dream of perpetual peace. So this was kind of the dominant idea about where development was going um, during the first half of the Cold War. Now, it's pretty obvious that this vision didn't really pan out. Um, all you have to do is read the newspaper to know that um, the Global South, mu much of the Global South anyways, continues to language in, languish in poverty, um, oppression, and in many cases, um, complex humanitarian emergencies. And basically, by the 1990s, when the Cold War was over, uh, modernization, uh, at least as an official doctrine, had long since been abandoned in much of the world, and it had been replaced um, by what we now refer to as structural adjustment programs, which basically focused on downsizing social support systems, and, various, and this produced various forms of semi-permanent marginality um, relative to the industrial core of the global north. Um, and that's sort of the situation that uh, I described in my first book. I mean, that arc, that history from about the 1940s through about the 1990s. Um, after I was done writing that book, I was still left with some nagging questions, which is, what happens to people after they give up on the dream of modernization or after the dream of modernization gives up on them? Um, what happens when people stop thinking that their states are going to be, or at least, tr are at least trying to provide them with a framework where they can work hard, keep their noses clean, and get ahead? Um, what happens especially when people confront the reality like that in the context of an increasingly globalized economic system? I didn't have any answers to this, but this was sort of the last question I, left, I was left with at the end of the book. Um, so this was one set of concerns that came out of my academic interests. Um, the second, this, this set of academic questions then merged with another set of questions which have really been the focus, or a primary focus, of my business consulting practice, which deals with emergent security threats of one sort or another. At Monitor 360, which is my outfit, um, we look at big, intractable security problems, and we try to find new ways to conceptualize them, to reframe them, confront them, um, and hopefully solve them. Um, and we ask questions like, how do things like the war on drugs, failed states, and guerrilla insurgencies fit together? And how, what are the better ways to try to conceptualize the relationships between them? And as it turned out, as we were looking across one incident after another that's been taking place over the last 15, 20 years, we saw that at the root of many of these issues were trades in illicit commodities. Um, this is true whether it was blood diamonds or blood oil creating horrible civil conflicts in Africa. It was true if we looked at the war on drugs and the way that was providing a prop uh, for regimes like the Taliban in Afghanistan back in the 1990s or the FARC in Colombia or the drug war that's going on in Mexico right now. We also looked at things like um, the sanctions-busting scandals that happened around Iraq and the UN Oil for Food Program. Uh, prior to the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And we even looked at things like um, the evolution of improvised explosive devices in the combat theaters of Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and these things um, have been the source, as many of you probably know, of the majority of coalition casualties over the last seven years. This is what we refer to as intractable problems or dilemmas. And um, we feel like the concept of duty and globalization is one that really helps us make some sense of that. So these... These two streams of thought came together um, a couple of years ago in a, taught, in a course I taught with a couple of my colleagues at Berkeley, um, Steve Weber and Jesse Goldhammer, um, on the topic of what I'm now calling deviant globalization. Um, what united all these different uh, extra-legal commodity flows, um, which underpin so many of these current and emerging security threats, 
was the unsanctioned circulation of goods and services that, either because of the way they're produced or because of the way they're consumed, violate someone's ethical sensibilities. Um, that course then uh, prompted us to put together a book on the topic, which will be coming out in the fall, um, which consists of a collection of essays written mostly by journalists, some academics, that basically look at a variety of individual instances, and I'll be talking about uh, most of these over the course of, uh, of the talk today, um, uh, whether it's you know, the drug trade or sex, the sex trade or human trafficking or um, the global circulation in human organs or what have you. We have a series of articles coming out on that. But we also try, and I'm going to provide a summary of the discussion here today, to see whether there are emerging patterns that we can find across these different illicit marketplaces, um, across these deviant marketplaces, whether there are certain common structural patterns, and then to think about what it all kind of means in terms of global politics and the future of development in the global south. And that's basically what I'm going to try to talk about today. So first, what is deviant globalization? Um, deviant globalization, in a word, is the unpleasant underside of glo globalization. For every legitimate industry that's out there, there's um, a deviant counterpart. Let me just give a few examples. So tourism, obviously this is a poster child for globalization. Um, it's something like a $300 billion a year industry globally, three billion or $400, $400 billion a year industry globally. And of course, there's a deviant counterpart to it in the sex tourism industry. There's literally millions of men every year, not a few women also, who annually travel to places like Thailand, to Jamaica, to the Netherlands, to Cuba, to the Philippines, to enjoy sexual pleasures that presumptively are unavailable to them in their home countries. Likewise, you look at the pharmaceutical industry, there's a deviant counterpart in the narcotics trade. Drugs, um, illicit drugs, are, with a possible exception of oil, the single most globalized um, business in the world, and they're worth somewhere between a quarter and half a trillion dollars a year. Waste disposal. Well, it has a deviant counterpart in what we might call toxic dumping. Sometimes illicitly, but just as often legally under the guise of recycling, quote-unquote, um, Global North uh, ships literally millions of tons of toxic waste, batteries, chemicals, e-wastes, end-of-life merchant ships, and so on, to the Global South, where it provides incomes for many of the people who find ways to reuse these materials, but also causes, obviously, massive physical and environmental insults for the countries that receive these goods. And just to give you a flavor for what I'm talking about, um, some of you may have heard of the Trafigura case, which has been going on for the last four years. This involved an Anglo-Dutch company, Trafigura, which in the summer of 2006 had a ship cargo full of extremely toxic wastes of one sort and another that it was trying to get rid of. And it was, this ship literally sailed all around different European ports trying to find somebody who would take on these chemicals. Um, and they were being told that they would have to pay something like $100 million to take these chemicals and dispose of them legally in Europe. Um, and needless to say, the company was not too pleased about having to pay that kind of a, a rate. And so what they did is they managed to find a, a gentleman in um, uh, Cote d'Ivoire who set up a shell company uh, in Cote d'Ivoire and who offered to buy this from them for a million dollars. So then they sailed this ship down to Abidjan, um, and in the dark of night, quite literally, unloaded all this material uh, onto barges in the port of Abidjan and sailed away. In the meanwhile, this fellow took all these stuff and just simply dumped it into the sewers and waterways of Abidjan. The result was not only an incredibly horrible smelling mess, apparently the stuff that was in this cargo hold is the stinkiest stuff in the world. Apparently there's scientists out there who measure stinkiness, and this is the stinkiest stuff. Um, <laughs> 
And uh, so the whole, pl- the whole city stank, but it also was extremely toxic. Over 100,000 people had to seek medical assistance, and in fact, several dozen people died as a result of this. Um, so that's an example of deviant waste disposal. Then there's obviously the military, um, which takes the form of arms trafficking. Arms dealing is, needless to say, the, um, uh, you know, the linchpin of many of the so- terrible so-called new wars that have been roiling uh, much of the world from Afghanistan to Burma, um, all across Africa. These weapons sometimes reach their recipients through black markets, but more commonly there's a kind of gray market that's going on here where militaries um, from nation states are interested in supporting some rebel group or another, usually indirectly, and by the way, a lot of these military officers are interested in making a dollar on the side, and so weapons fall off the back of a truck and end up in the hands of some resistance group. Um, and I, you know, I think most of you will either remember or certainly have read about the Iran-Contra scandal back in the 1980s, classic example of this, right? I mean, the U.S. Congress had said we couldn't support the Contras directly, and so you know, we sold weapons to the Israelis who shipped them to the Iranians, who gave money to the Israelis, who gave the money to the Contras so that they could fight uh, an insurgency against the Sandinista regime in Nicaragua. Um, classic kind of case of deviant globalization. Um, a more recent example, some of you may have seen the uh, Nicolas Cage film Lord of War, which was a dramatization of the life, well, a loose, loosely based on the life of the Ukrainian arms dealer Victor Boot, who was probably the biggest single arms trafficker of the last 15 years, got arrested about a year ago, a year and a half ago, in, um, in Thailand, and he's been fighting extradition into the U.S. ever since then. Then there's commodities. I mean, commodities are obviously a linchpin of the global economy, circulation of oil, metals, goods, and stuff like that. But it also takes deviant forms. This is partly uh, illegally harvested commodities. But one of the things that's worth thinking about specifically, I think, is exotic wildlife tracking, which is a much bigger business uh, trafficking, which is a much bigger business than you might expect. Um, Whether it's European wildlife collectors looking to round out their collection of Komodo dragons, that'll cost you $30,000, or Chinese men looking for uh, powdered rhinoceros horn pick-me-up, that's about $1,500, or San Francisco interior designers who are looking to get you a better price on your Brazilian hardwood floor. Um, there's an enormous industry in harvesting and circulating uh, many specialty natural goods, many of which are from highly endangered species or ecosystems. Um, and in fact, the illicit commerce, this brings up a very important point about deviant globalization, which is that illicit commerce in otherwise legal commodities almost certainly dwarfs the size of the purely illegal market, despite the size of the drug market. Um, so trafficking uh, you know, under the radar um, of goods like timber or oil or minerals or diamonds, these things are a huge source of illicit revenues for people in the global system. Perhaps the one of the most disturbing examples of deviant globalization is deviant healthcare. Um, so, with the invention of cyclosporine um, in the late 1970s and then being brought uh, to market in the early 1980s, um, uh, cyclosporine is a drug that basically suppresses the immunorejection response for organ transplants. Um, all of a sudden, organ transplantation went from something that was a very kind of unusual uh, last-ditch uh, last kind of procedure in the 1960s and 70s, something that became very, very mainstream in the 1980s and 90s. Um, I suspect there's probably almost certainly somebody in this audience who has a transplanted organ. Um, unfortunately, uh, there's a huge gap between the demand for these organs and the supply of these organs. Um, uh, in most of the global north, 
organs are supplied um, from cadavers, and people have to opt in to being organ donors. And the result is that there's just not enough organs uh, relative to the number of people who are demanding, um, demanding organs. And of course, the demand for organs has increased uh, steadily over the years as populations age, as the amount of hypertension um, patients age. Uh, um, and so there's been a steady increase in demand, but there hasn't been much of an increase in supply. And the result is that many people languish for many years on waiting lists, looking for waiting for um, you know someone to die in a motorcycle crash so that they can get a uh, they can get an organ. But there is another option, and as people get desperate, going through dialysis for many hours, three times a week, four times a week, it becomes a more and more reasonable option for them to consider, which is that you can fly today to a variety of places in the global south and buy yourself an organ. Well, you don't have to do it yourself; an, or an organ broker will take care of it for you. Um, and for about $150,000, you can get yourself a new kidney. Well, the organ donors themselves um, don't get that much. They typically get between one and 10,000 of those $150,000. Um, another thing that's interesting about the, uh, the global circulation of organs is that it, um, there's actually several, it's actually not a completely globalized marketplace. There's several regional marketplaces. So the US, the most common place for US uh, organ donors in this marketplace, or organ recipients in this marketplace to go is uh, the Philippines and Brazil. Um, Philippines and Brazil, they actually source their organs locally. They're local donors, mostly. Um, for, uh, the, uh, for the Europeans, um, the most popular places are Istanbul and South Africa. Um, in South Africa, they mostly go to... They mostly actually fly in Brazilians to be organ donors um, because Europeans are um, afraid of getting African organs, ostensibly because of HIV, although there may be other reasons there. Um, in East Asia, it's a completely different marketplace. Um, the focus there is uh, there's a lot of organ um, transplant facilities in South Asia, many um, in, in India specifically, and they get a lot of their organs locally. Um, there's also a lot of Chinese um, and Japanese businessmen who go to the Philippines like Americans do to get these organs. So there's a, there's a complex global network of these organ dealers um, supplying and demanding uh, these organs. Well, there's also the software industry, obviously another big globalized industry. I'll be talking about this a little bit more later, but the obvious deviant counterpart to the software industry is the malware industry. Malware stands for malicious software. Uh, this is Trojans, viruses, um, things that take over your computer and either exfiltrate data, steal your personal information, or turn your computer into a zombie, part of a botnet so they can run spam, denial of service attacks, and so on. Then there's immigration. Um, immigration and human trafficking. Um, an estimated uh, three or four million people annually illegally immigrate from one country to another, or at least uh, without formal license from one country to another. Um, and these movements are facilitated by a huge network of brokers and logistics professionals who for a fee will help move you uh, from wherever you want to go to wherever else you want to go. So, for example, today people pay between $30,000 and $75,000 to be moved from China to the United States, usually through Mexico these days. They were coming through Europe until uh, a couple of years ago, but Mexico is the main transition point. Um, some of the Mexican drug cartels have sort of diversified their business by getting into the human trafficking thing. Um, if you want to get from Cuba to the U.S., um, that'll cost you about $10,000, which is actually the same price that a gang of Iraqis was charging Iraqis in 2007 and 2008, it's the height of the civil war in Iraq, to be transported from Baghdad to Great Britain. So there's, again, all sorts of global networks brokered by, uh, brokered by people who are willing to make these things happen. And finally, perhaps most importantly, there's the deviant finance industry, otherwise known as money laundering. The reason why this might be the most important industry is this is the industry that allows all of these other guys who are doing this illicit stuff to bring their money back into the daylight. 
Um, so basically, the size of the deviant finance industry is at least equal to all the other deviant industries put together. Um, now, I'll mention this a little bit later. One needs to be skeptical when one hears about numbers, but estimates of the size of the uh, money laundering industry globally range from between one and a half and five trillion dollars annually. So that's between four and twelve percent of GDP globally. Um, so it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty significant business. Um, now, this is not an exhaustive list of deviant industries, I should note. There are many other uh, illicit marketplaces, most of which are thoroughly globalized. Another one um, that I just learned about recently uh, is that the third largest illicit marketplace in terms of cash, trans cash transfers, and the third after, uh, after drugs and human trafficking, is the stolen art uh, market. There, um, it's worth an estimated $10 billion a year, um, and in fact, there are whole law firms in the United States, the UK, and, and in France whose business is focused exclusively on discreetly arranging the necessary ransoms to get your stolen art back. So, um, and again, you know, these guys don't want to advertise what they're actually or publicize what they're paying for these things, so you need to look at the numbers skeptically, but it's a big, big problem. Um, in addition, as I've kind of pointed out with some of these examples, a lot of these businesses are sort of overlapping and interdigitated. Um, and just there's a great essay in the book that's coming out by Johnny Steinberg, um, South African journalist, um, talking about the illicit abalone business in South Africa. So abalone is a large, tasty snail, um, a sea snail, um, and uh, it turns out that it's particularly considered a delicacy in uh, in South China. If you guys have had it, you probably had it at dim sum places. Um, and uh, unsurprisingly, therefore, the uh, now, abalone, furthermore, is a fairly tightly controlled, it's easy to overfish abalone, and so it's a fairly tightly controlled fisheries. And in South Africa, it indeed is controlled, um, uh, but not so much by the state, but rather by Chinese triad gangsters, who um, basically control the uh, abalone trade uh, between South Africa and Guangzhou. Um, but what's really interesting about this is that uh, it's not just that they're in the illicit abalone business, but the way they pay for their abalone to the people who are harvesting the stuff in South Africa is they pay them in kind with crystal meth, um, which is produced in China. So there's abalone going out, going out from South Africa, and the container comes back filled with crystal meth, which then fuels the huge drug problem in, uh, in many of the townships uh, and slums around Johannesburg and Cape Town. That, in a nutshell, is what deviant globalization is all about. So the main thing I want to leave you with from this part of the presentation is that deviant globalization is not a marginal phenomenon. It's a huge phenomenon, and by all indications, it's rapidly growing. And I want to give you a couple examples um, of some of the ways in which we know that it's growing and that these numbers also tell us a little bit about the nature of the trade. So let me talk about cocaine prices. Uh, this is in kilo equivalent. So... Um, in 1997, a kilo, of, a kilo equivalent of cocaine at the farm door gate in Peru cost about $650. That's dropped to about $250 uh, a few years ago. These numbers, by the way, all come from the UN Office for Drug Control. Then, after it gets shipped for processing to Colombia, um, it costs uh, about $1,000. Um, then, once it's imported into the United States, uh, it costs about $15,000. Now, again, all these numbers are continually dropping over time. Once it's wholesaled um, in the United States, it goes up again to about $21,000. And finally, at the retail uh, street price of a kilo of cocaine, so once it's broken up into gram-sized packages, um, it goes for about $107,000. Um, these are 2005 prices, but you can see the numbers are generally declining over time. Now, 
most of you may not be economists, but generally speaking, when prices are declining um, and demand is steady, as we had to assume it probably is for a commodity like this, um, that generally means that, demand, that supply is increasing, right? The other thing that I'd point out that's really, really important to recognize is look at where the profit margin is highest. It's specifically at the, at the stage of importation. Now, why is that? That is because that is where there's the most pressure on the supply chain from the, from the uh, narcotics regulators, the DEA. Um, so the narcotics regulators, they think they're in the drug eradication business. They're actually in the drug regulation business. And by increasing the risk for the people who are uh, importing the stuff in, they actually increase the ability of those who stay in the business to demand premium prices and actually raise the profit margins for the people who manage to survive in the business. So if you're able to... Um, if you're able to control that part of the business by, say, corrupting a, um, a border agent, and there's been 80 border agents in the last three years in the U.S., just on the U.S. side of the border, that have been convicted of corruption of one sort or another, um, then you can make 1,400% profit margins. Now, some of you may not be business people, but almost every business person in the world would kill for a business with those kinds of margins. And in fact, these guys do. Um, another... Uh, piece of data that uh, is useful for sort of getting a sense um, of the growth of this is the growth of malware. Um, so these are new malicious code signatures, so new, new variants of malware. Um, in terms of thousands of cases, again, this data is collected by one of the leading antivirus software companies, Symantec. Um, and you can see between 2003 and 2009, there's been about 200% a year annual growth in the number of malware cases. Um, now, there's a lot of stuff that's going on with this. Um, but a big part of this is where these malware cases are originating from. And increasingly, they are originating from the global south. Uh, and that's directly correlated to the fact that internet adoption is increasing rapidly in the global south. Um, and if there's one thing that's almost an iron law, um, it's that within 6 to 18 months of a country getting uh, big, fat broadband access, it is likely to emerge as a new hotbed of hacking. Um, now, to paraphrase... Uh, Nicholas Negroponte, who runs the Media Lab at MIT, or used to run the Media Lab at MIT, um, a laptop for every child means a hacker in every hut. <laughs> now, I could proceed with some more examples, but I think you get the point. And actually, I tend to be pretty skeptical um, of a lot of the st statistics we hear about deviant globalization, um, mainly because... Everybody who's involved in this has an incentive to lie about the size of these things. Now, these last two sets of statistics, cocaine prices and, um, and malware signatures, these are things where the criminals have to come out in the open to do their business. So you, you have some confidence that these numbers are probably pretty accurate. But a lot of the other numbers um, are, uh, are probably not uh, particularly reliable. Um, on the one hand, the deviant industries themselves um, do everything they can to remain out of sight of state authorities or anybody else who's really trying to measure on a consistent basis what they're up to. Um, and on the other hand, um, most of the state organizations that are in charge or supposed to be in charge of paying attention to this stuff um, have a vested interest both in exaggerating the scale of the phenomenon and, and in exaggerating the scale of their success against the phenomenon. So all in all, it's, there's not a lot of confidence in the statistics. Um, because uh, deviant globalization takes place sort of in the shadows of the global economy and outside the purview of the state, generally speaking, the best way to try to get your head around this problem is to look at what you might call ethnographic accounts. And um, some of this is done by uh, journalists, some of it is done by academics, sort of a mix, and if you see the book, it reflects that. Um, 
One, but there's a series of books that I've read just in the last couple of years that have really illuminated this phenomenon for me. One is Gomorra by uh, the, Italian, uh, the Italian writer Roberto Saviano, which has also been made into a great movie that I recommend if you haven't seen, um, about the way the Neapolitan mob has infiltrated every aspect of daily life uh, in that part of Italy. Um, then there's The Snakehead by Patrick Radden Keefe, uh, which is a brilliant account of the dynamics of illegal Chinese immigration. Um, the New Yorker, which is currently edited by David Remnick, who cut his teeth on this 20 years ago when he wrote a book on uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, which was a hotbed of stage one deviant globalization. Um, he's been having a whole series of writers do really interesting stuff. Um, one of the best pieces that I've read recently is by Rafi Kachadorian on the illegal timber trade in uh, Siberia. Um, and finally, uh, I have to recommend Carolyn Nordstrom's book, Global Outlaws, which is uh, sort of an ethnographic account of what the war economy of Angola is like and how it actually works. It's, uh, it's a brilliant book. So these are the kinds of sources that I've used to really get my head around this stuff, in addition to doing a lot of interviews with people who are participating in these kinds of, uh, in these kinds of activities. So what makes deviant globalization possible? In a word, we do. You do. I do. The essence of deviant globalization is... Moral arbitrage. Now, let me unpack that. Um, Emile Durkheim, the French sociologist, observed a long time ago that societies are, to a large extent, defined and made up, uh, made up of and defined by their taboos. Um, that is, by what they prohibit, either morally or in the case of modern societies, legally. Um, but in a globalized world economy, the functional effect of taboos and prohibitions is not necessarily so much as to reduce demand so much as it is to reduce supply in particular locations, which in turn creates market opportunities. Moreover, the prohibitions, or their effective enforcement, varies tremendously from one locale to another, creating price gaps between different locations. Um, now, taking advantage of these kinds of price differences for a given commodity between two different marketplaces represents exactly what economists refer to as an arbitrage opportunity, that is, an opportunity to make a market between two places where the prices aren't, uh, aren't, aren't aligned. And this is precisely what deviant entrepreneurs are doing with respect to deviant commodities. They're connecting suppliers in one lightly regulated or controlled marketplace to customers in a different, more heavily controlled or, and thus expensive marketplace. Sometimes that means moving the commodities um, from the commodities closer to the consumers, drugs or what have you. Uh, other times um, that means moving the, the consumer closer to the product, sex tourism, the organ trade, and so on. Um, State regulations, and here's the key point, state regulations, which embody the moral inhibitions of the people they represent, or at least some of the moral inhibitions of some of the people they represent, are the, th are the things that create the opportunities for the deviant entrepreneurs. Um, sex tourism only exists because people can't get that kind of sex at home. Drug dealing um, makes the highest profits precisely where people decide to put them, the regulators decide to put the most pressure. Or consider cigarettes and booze, right? There's huge black markets in cigarettes and booze, and these markets grow in very statistically measurable ways every time you increase the prices, the taxes, on cigarettes and booze. So there's huge businesses in Eastern Europe. I mean, cigarettes in Europe cost $7, $8 a pack. Uh, and they cost about 40 cents to produce. And so there's huge uh, cigarette smuggling businesses based mostly in the Balkans, which are just outside the European Union, um, that basically supply something between 15 and 30% of the cigarettes uh, to Western Europe. Same exact thing is going on in the Western Hemisphere. Cigarette smuggling is a hotbed, of, is, is uh, one of the key industries in the tri-border area 
um, between Brazil, Argentina, and Paraguay in South America, and a lot of these cigarettes end up uh, on the shelves here in San Francisco. Um, so here's a key point. It's, it's our moral inhibitions or in our attempt to enforce them and inevitably enforce them unevenly that creates the opportunities for deviant entrepreneurs to make the money that they do. All right, now I want to make a couple of other points about the structure of this trade. Deviant globalization is not identical to illicit trade. Um, what really defines deviant globalization is not so much whether it's legal or illegal as what you might refer to as the yuck factor. Um, let me give you an example of that. Perfectly legal activity, which definitely is deviant globalization. Until 2008, the age of consent in Canada was 14. Um, it was only raised to 18 a couple of years ago when the story that I'm about to tell became a scandal in, uh, in Canada. Um, turned out that uh, 2005, 2006, 2007, there were all these men, primarily in border states in the United States, uh, Minnesota, and Michigan, New York, who were using chat rooms to meet 15, 14-year-old girls from Canada online and arrange assignations where they would go meet them in hotel rooms in Toronto or Montreal or, um, or what have you in, uh, in, in Canada. Uh, this was obviously a way of getting around the underage sex laws in the United States, and it was all perfectly legal, but also perfectly deviant. Same thing is going on right now. Now, that, that's changed now that they've changed the laws um, in Canada, but the same thing is going on right now in the heart of Europe. So right now, the age of consent for paid sexual relations in Switzerland is 16. In Italy and France, it's 18. And in Germany, it's 21. Well, unsurprisingly, Switzerland <laughs> has emerged as, you know, uh, basically an entrepot for, you know, men who like sex with underage girls, or young girls, I should say. Um, uh, it's become a magnet for it, um, and uh, this is all over the newspapers in, uh, in France. The second thing I'd say is that deviant globalization is not identical to the informal economy. We shouldn't confuse it with uh, disorganization. Um, yes, it's run off the books um, and outside government oversight, but most deviant globalization enterprises, most deviant enterprises of the storm describing are anything but mom and pop shops. Um, in fact, most of the participants in deviant globalization operate in large, complex, and carefully managed organizations run by ruthless entrepreneurs whose basic business strategies would be familiar to any reader of the Harvard Business Review. Um, the big guys are constantly trying to increase their market share. Uh, they try to be number one or number two in every market they enter, um, while the little guys seek uh, niche differentiation, let's say. Um, they seek monopolies um, and uh, work out um, strategies for creating what you might call barriers to entry. Um, they, develop, they develop channel strategies um, so that once, they have a, once they've built a pipe for moving one kind of illicit commodity, why not pump all sorts of other illicit commodities? So those gangsters in the Balkans who started out by being cigarette smugglers during the 1990s as a way and, and then became sanctions busters during the sanctions against Serbia and now become the primary traffickers of uh, women for, uh, for sexual slavery in Western Europe. They're you know, taking uh, poor women out of the villages of Eastern Europe and Russia and uh, bringing them across the border to serve in brothels in, uh, in Western Europe, in the European Union. Um, and finally, they often leverage the latest in information technology. And there's a story, possibly apocryphal, but um, telling nonetheless, uh, that in, I believe it was 1999 or 2000, a Colombian drug lord's house was raided, and they found in his basement a mainframe, an IBM mainframe 
that was being used to run the complex spreadsheet and future forecasting for his entire business. Now, I don't know where he got a consultant to run this thing. I guess he wasn't the guy running it himself. But somehow he managed to get this thing run to run his very complex business. Now, I don't want to exaggerate this. Um, there's a lot of businesses, a lot of deviant businesses are not necessarily run with profit maximization as their exclusive focus. Um, political power, prestige, business stability, business continuity, these are often you know, imperative things. Anybody has to just watch the uh, TV show The Wire, you can see how much business continuity tends to be something that's top of mind for these guys. Um, but at the same time, the same thing, exact, the same exact thing is true of uh, above-board businesses. Uh, you know, the notion that all businesses are profit maxim maximizing to the exclusion of everything else is a, is a complete lie. Um, everybody knows that people make trade-offs about you know, work-life balance, about you know, what businesses they want to go into, what kinds of clients and customers they want to pursue. These things are not governed just by profit motives, but all sorts of other kinds of things. All right, so that, in a nutshell, is what deviant globalization is. What I'd like to do next is talk a little bit about um, what deviant globalization means. And I have two propositions, each of which are meant as a provocation. Um, the first thing I'd like to say is that deviant globalization is development. Let me start by reading you a quote from Milton Friedman, which I think is quite telling. Milton Friedman would be our gentleman here on the left. Um, um, Milton Friedman said... Um, the black market was a way of getting, this is a quote, um, the black market was a way of getting around government controls. It was a way of enabling the free market to work. It was a way of opening up, enabling people. Um, now, I'll confess that quoting Milton Friedman in this way, in this context, is a little bit cheeky, but Milton, Uncle Milty is making a very important point for us, um, which is that deviant globalization is not necessarily all bad news. Um, if you like entrepreneurship, if you like innovation, then you've got to love deviant globalization. <laughs> the guys who organize the markets of deviant globalization are, in many cases, brilliant innovators. Um, they're constantly building new businesses. They know how to thrive amid the chaos of contemporary capitalism. All the cliches you read about radical innovation, disruptive innovation, apply in spades to deviant, global, deviant enterprises. Second, and just as importantly, deviant globalization represents an extremely significant flow of money, and resources from the global north to the global south. There's a large amount of resources that come this way, almost certainly several orders of magnitude bigger than the foreign aid that flows from the global north to the global south, almost certainly an order of magnitude bigger than the remittances that flow from the global north to the global south. This is a major way of bringing wealth from the global north to the global south. What this suggests, what these two ideas suggest, is that in a peculiar way, um, Deviant globalization is enabling precisely the sorts of grassroots empowerment and non-dependency that dependency theorists and World Bank types have been calling for for the last 60 years in development. Let me give you another example to kind of frame this for you. Uh, there was an article in the Atlantic Monthly that appeared in December by Phil Caputo um, where he noted that the Mexican narcotics industry currently directly employs 400,000 people. Directly employs 400,000 people. That's more than the finance industry. That's more than the oil industry. That's more, in fact, than every single industry except for tourism and agriculture. This is a major, major part of the Mexican economy. Um, my colleague Jesse Goldhammer, who's the co-editor of the book, um, was in, a, in Mexico a couple years ago. He was in a small village in Oaxaca, and he noticed that everybody in this village had a brand new house, um, a color TV, and a satellite dish. 
He was a little bit surprised by this. These seem to be poor peasants who are just, you know, farming corn and whatnot. Um, and he started asking some questions about where all this stuff came from. And he, at first, got a lot of cold stares, not a lot of answers, then some hemming and hawing about remittances. And finally, he was told to shut up and stop asking questions. Um, this is a way that people can get rich, um, or at least stop being as poor as they were before. And this is also fully recognized by many of the states where this stuff is going on. Um, there's a number of states that have embraced deviant globalization as an explicit developmental strategy for themselves. Um, probably the most obvious and conspicuous example is the way that sex tourism is actively encouraged by a number of states in Southeast Asia. And there's, a, there's sort of a, a demonstration effect there. Thailand uh, basically um, became a, a global entrepreneur for sex in the 1960s when it basically offered to be the host for American soldiers on rest and recreation from the Vietnam War, was R&R, or what was also known as I&I, Intercourse and Intoxication. Um, and uh, this w absolutely helped jumpstart the, uh, the Thai economy. A lot of money came in. I mean, obviously, a lot of it was related to military procurement and spending in other ways from the U.S., uh, from the US but it was a very significant source of revenue. And many countries uh, that are neighboring Tha Thailand are today emulating that exact same pattern, whether it's Cambodia or the Philippines. Um, these guys see themselves very much uh, as a way, see, you know, encouraging or at least tacitly uh, putting up with sex tourism as a way to jumpstart economic development. Um, and in some ways, uh, you know, this is not that different in kind from the way many uh, third world countries, almost all third world countries, are perfectly happy to accept a polluting factory uh, as a way of attracting investment and jumpstarting growth. Um, you know, just the same way, uh, you know, it's basically a question of whether you want to accept physical pollution or a kind of social and moral pollution in order to jumpstart your growth. Um, so beyond the states in question, deviant globalization also represents the personal enrichment strategy for those who participate in the trade. Um, now, I don't want to say that uh, coercion is not part of the equation. Uh, in many cases, it certainly is. But in the majority of cases, people who sell their organs or become drug mules or decide to have sex with filthy middle-aged foreigners um, aren't doing it because they're forced, but are doing it because it's the fastest, best, or easiest way to make a dollar, and it's better than staying back in the village. Um, so from that perspective, deviant globalization can be seen as a kind of survival strategies of the weak. Um, and to say this, again, is not to deny the awfulness of the exploitation, and the oppressiveness that, in many cases, deviant globalization represents for the line workers within deviant, deviant enterprises, but it's simply to recognize that, with rare exceptions, um, most of the participants, child prostitutes aside, have some degree of agency in this. Um, becoming a wildlife smuggler or a drug runner or an or organ donor is a choice. It's not a very pleasant choice, but are you really so sure that it's a, it's a worse choice than becoming a coal miner in China? Every week, on average, more people die coal mining in China than died in that mining accident in West Virginia last week. So let me step back now and talk a little bit about what the background, the backstory to deviant globalization is. Um, and this returns me to the theme I started with, my dissertation, um, which I then turned into a book which was about the failure of what I, in that book, referred to as high modernist development schemes. Um, now, getting into high modernist development is a topic for another day, but I have to provide a brief thumbnail of it in order to make this uh, make, make sense here. So high modernism refers to a vision of economic development as a process that governments spearhead on behalf of their populations as a whole and that aims to create 
a broadly inclusive set of public goods around health, security, education, healthcare, so on. Um, now, from the point of view of the Global South, the Cold War was, from one perspective, a debate about whether communism or liberal capitalism offered better prospects for building precisely such prosperous public goods providing welfare states. Now, diverse economic strategies, as we all know, were attempted to, were, were tried in order to realize this dream. Collective ownership of the means of production in communist countries, laissez-faire, import substitution industrialization, export-led growth, um, and diverse political programs went along with this. But what almost all of these strategies had in common, with a few exceptions in East Asia, is that they failed. Um, communism, of course, failed most spectacularly, but again, except for a few countries uh, in the Pacific Rim, capitalism didn't do much better for most of those countries during most of this period. Um, not in terms of headline growth, not in terms of poverty reduction, not in terms of um, most measures of human development as measured by the United Nations. Now, when communism died in 1989, what died was not just the particular collectivist economic system and authoritarian politics of the Soviet Union and its satellites. Cremated along with that corpse was the broadly public civic-minded notion of development as the central defining responsibility of the post-colonial state. What arose instead in the 1990s, late 1980s and early 1990s, was what came to be known as the Washington Consensus. Now, the Washington Consensus represented the um, dominant neoliberal economic program for the Global South during the 1990s as promoted by the IMF and the U.S. government. And uh, the Harvard economist Danny Roderick has defined it this way. He says, stabilize, privatize, and liberalize became the mantra of a generation of technocrats who cut their teeth in the developing world and of the political leaders they counseled. Um, it wasn't hard to understand why they, this particular view uh, of what the state should and shouldn't be doing made sense. It was not hard to point to the undeniable corruption, the inefficiency, the rent-seeking and predatory behavior of many post-colonial states in the global south. Um, and neoliberalism had a solution that definitely addressed those problems. It sought to dismantle these states by slashing public bureaucracies, foreign aid, trade barriers, um, and so on. And where such programs were successfully imposed, which included um, almost all of Latin America, um, much of uh, South Asia, much of Africa, um, it led to what might in a nutshell be called the hollowing out of the state. Uh, what I mean by hollowing out is that you still have in these places the physical and institutional infrastructure of a state. Uh, you still have the Capitol building, you still have representatives that go to the European Union, you still have a constitution that says that this, that, and the next thing is supposed to go on. Um, but the actual capacity of those states to deliver anything like what they had been saying to their people they were supposed to be delivering, whether they were delivering or not is another story, the actual capacity to deliver those things really went away in a way that was um, a real signal difference from the way things were being run from the 1950s through the 1980s in most of these states. Um, and the post-Cold War, post War hollowing out of these states had two really critical results, um, both of which are, you can't understand why deviant globalization happened without understanding these two results. So the first one is that deviant globalization signaled unmistakably to, these to the individuals in these countries that you're on your own. Um, the end of the promise of state building and building states to provide public goods um, or the, rather, perhaps more accurately, the revelation that those promises had always been empty um, meant that people had to strike out on their own. And the result was a global unleashing of what we might call survival entrepreneurship throughout the global south and above all in the former communist states, which had previously lacked any legal outlets for that kind of uh, 
that kind of behavior. Um, and, you know, here it's, again, I mentioned David Remnick cutting his teeth on uh, the history of the late Soviet Union and the economic system that was going on there. Um, there's a reason why Eastern Europe emerged as the real hotbed, an epicenter of DDN globalization in the 1990s, and that's because the only people who really had entrepreneurial skills in the late 1980s who were able to develop them in the communist regime were people who were explicitly doing things that were illegal. You had to already be an amoral person willing to flout the laws of the state in order to develop the kinds of entrepreneurial skills that would be absolutely required in the you know, post-shock therapy, post-neoliberal, post-Washington consensus versions of the states that they were going to operate in. So it was absolutely inevitable, and you read Remnick's book from 1991, he spells it out, it's absolutely inevitable that the people who are going to take over the economies in these places are people who are criminals. Um, so that's at the elite level. At the grassroots level, people had the same kinds of choices to make. The economies were collapsing, and people did what they had to do to survive. That, that meant you know, becoming sex workers or organ sellers or narcotics purveyors or wildlife smugglers, and they did that. Uh, this is what they had to do to survive, and so they did. Now, the second and equally important um, impact of the hollowing out of states at the end of the Cold War was that it largely dismantled the regulatory capacity of states in the global south. So, in other words, tossed out with a statist baby was much of the practical capacity to enforce any kind of border control or other kinds of uh, legal regimes. Um, this, too, liberated the forces of globalization, obviously. Um, you know, and it basically turned the entire global south into a smuggler's paradise. Um, this borderless world of the global south um, was, in many ways, is in many ways, a kind of return to the pre-modern order of fragmented sovereignties, jurisdictional ambiguities, localized governance. And there's still a state that's sitting there, but those guys, in many cases, are not the people who are running anything that actually matters on the ground in most places in the global south. So what does all this add up to? Well, from one perspective... Deviant globalization can be seen as the failure of modernization and development. Um, but from another perspective, it can be seen as not as the failure of development, as I said, but rather as actually existing development. And I use that phrase carefully. Actually existing development, some of you may remember, is meant to be an ironic echo of the old Soviet phrase that the Soviet Union represented actually existing socialism. This was, of course, meant as a put-down to all those kind of Western socialists who said, no, 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 that's a perverted version of socialism. That's not real socialism. We have a different vision of it. Um, and the Soviets said, no, 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 we have actually existing socialism. Don't listen to what all those you know, soft-headed liberals in the West who think they're socialists actually think socialism means. Um, so likewise, equating deviant globalization with actually existing development is meant as an invitation to judge development, not by the vision statements put forth by the World Bank or the IMF or the Gates Foundation, but rather by its actual results. Just as actually existing socialism represents a kind of perverse realization of socialism's promise of equality, so deviant globalization represents a kind of perverse realization of capitalism's promise of personal liberty. To the same extent that Soviet oppression represented and told us something very fundamental and very disturbing, about the dream of socialism, deviant globalization tells us something very fundamental and very disturbing about the dream of capitalism. Simply put, deviant globalization is what you get when you combine massive socioeconomic inequality, moral lumpiness across a global landscape, and the technologies of globalization to bring all that together. What that enables is the rapid movement of people and goods, and none of these elements are likely to be reversed over time, barring some really unexpected exogenous shock. And so I would summarize by saying deviant globalization is not a correctable aberration. It's not some 
you know, exception to the rule of globalization. It's not a marginal feature of the system. It is the system. The second major proposition, excuse me, the second major proposition I'd like to make about why deviant globalization matters is that deviant globalization is creating a new class of political actors um, whose geopolitical importance is only likely to grow with the underlying resource streams that they're in control of. Just like the classic high modernist state that I was talking about earlier was supposed to create a certain class of actors, namely a welfare, public goods providing state, um, deviant globalization is creating a different class of, uh, of geopolitical actors, what my friend John Robb refers to in his blog as, quote-unquote, global guerrillas. Now, in what sense are people like the people in this picture? By the way, these are guerrillas, uh, MEND, Movement for the Emancipation of the Nigerian Delta. Um, they steal oil, basically, for, or I shouldn't say steal. They take the oil that's being pumped out of their, their swamp um, by Western oil companies and uh, uh, hold it for ransom or threaten to blow up those pipelines if the oil companies won't pay them more money, um, and so on. Now, in what sense are these guys political actors? Well, as we've seen, um, deviant entrepreneurs are controlling large and growing swaths of the global economy. Um, and uh, they have this control basically outside the purview of the state. The states, you know, have estimates of how big they are, but have no control over it, no ability to... Uh, they can sort of shape the flows, but they can't uh, really dictate the size or dictate exactly who's going to be running these things. There's no uh, sort of very efficient regulatory system for deviant globalization. Um, these actors also, um, because they work in extra-legal marketplaces, wield a non-insignificant quota of violence and force. Uh, that's sort of an occupational hazard if you're going to run an ec uh, extra-legal business. Um, you've got to be able to adjudicate contracts, and courts aren't going to help you there. Um, and finally, these deviant entrepreneurs, and this is what's really interesting, many of these deviant entrepreneurs are beginning to provide privatized versions of the same kinds of political goods that states used to say they were in the business of providing. Now, let me explain what that means. So these private actors are beginning to provide things like health clinics, um, infrastructure, personal security, justice of a rough sort, um, to the local communities in which they operate. Um, they build parks. They build medical clinics. They sometimes even build schools. Now, these are not things that are open to the public. They're open to their particular constituents, the children of the people who are in their businesses. These are all company towns, if you will. There's no such thing as public goods for these guys. But they are providing the kinds of goods that create political loyalties in the consumers of these goods. So if you're getting your clinic and your road and your job from guys like this, are you going to be more loyal to these guys or to the robber barons up in Abuja? Uh, it's pretty clear where your loyalties are going to lie. Now, the thing I want to emphasize is that these guys are not nice people, generally speaking. It's important to recognize um, that these guys, these political entrepreneurs, are both a cause and an effect of state hollowing out, and they're thus a threat to the state as classically understood. But they're resolutely not revolutionary actors like Che Guevara or the Ayatollah Khomeini. Um, revolutionary actors sought to capture the state. They wanted to control the state because they wanted to deliver those kinds of goods and services, the public goods and services I was referring to earlier, to their constituents. They had a very different kind of agenda. These guys, people like these two, Diego Fernando Murillo, who's a big drug dealer in Colombia, um, or Victor Boot, the arms dealer I referred to earlier, he's the guy on the right, these are much more typical of the sort of counter-statist actors um, that deviant globalization produces. Um, 
But what they don't want to do is they don't want to take over the state. I mean, why would you want to take over the state? It doesn't, ha it doesn't have any very good functions. You have to attend all sorts of boring meetings in Washington and New York. Um, and then you also have to provide services to people you don't care about. They'd much rather uh, provide services to the people who are part of their communities as they define them. And here I'm thinking of, of groups as like the Mahdi Army in, uh, in Baghdad, um, or the first command of the capital, uh, which is a, a prison gang in, in, uh, in Brazil, or the Andragueta in, uh, in Italy that Roberto Saviano writes about in uh, Gomorra, or the drug cartels in Mexico. Um, these guys are all challenging the state um, de facto, but except when they're directly challenged by the state, they don't go after the state. Now, they do sometimes get into direct conflicts with the state, but it's only usually when the state initiates the conflict. So a couple of years ago, the first command of the capital shut down Sao Paulo for three days, completely shut it down by staging attacks against police stations. And the reason they did that was because the government had decided they were going to try to break up the communications network that the drug kingpins who were all in jail were putting together. They were seizing all the cell phones they were using to coordinate stuff. So these guys ordered a, basically a hit taken out on the state, and for three days, Sao Paulo State was shut down. And Sao Paulo State, it should be noted, has a quarter of all the industrial production of South America. Um, so they basically shut down a quarter of South America for three days. Um, and, but this was because the state initiated the, the, the conflict. Likewise, the bloodbath that's currently taking place in northern Mexico is a direct result of the new president coming in in late 2006 and saying, you know, stop. There was a lot of violence going on between the drug gangs competing over turf, but there wasn't a lot of violence directed at citizens. The reason why things like what happened in um, uh, Ciudad Juarez a couple, uh, in January where... A, a party full of teenagers was just machine gunned for no reason, is that these gangsters were trying to tell the government that if you keep messing with us, we're going to start taking it out on your constituents. Um, so it's only in those contexts that these guys usually directly confront the state. They'd prefer rather to sort of just undermine the state, create, make the state be weak, to carve out zones of autonomy for themselves so they can run their businesses, make their money, and they're not generally interested in directly undermining the state, and yet de facto, they end up functionally sapping the capacity, the legitimacy of the state because they're replacing the state de facto and functionally. Okay. This is a picture from Sao Paulo, by the way. Actually, yeah, this is Sao Paulo. You'll notice, by the way, that um, uh, that big pool with swimming lanes is not enough. These guys each need to have their own pool on their balconies. These guys are all right, though. Um... What I'd like to conclude with is some thoughts about um, what all this tells us about the future uh, of the world's economic system, the world political system. I think deviant globalization has basically two really interesting things to tell us about that. Um, and it contradicts the two most dominant narratives about the global south that have predominated in American foreign policy thinking and public discourse over the last 15 or 20 years. The first one of those um, discourses is the kind of liberal view put forward by people like Tom Friedman or back in the 1990s, Francis Fukuyama, uh, that said that we were headed for that modernist vision of liberal states. They said, we're going to have uh, economic growth, the world's going to become flat, everybody's going to get rich, it's going to be great. And we're going to actually end up with this world, uh, this Kantian vision of perpetual peace. So this sort of liberal dream of what international relations can become is one dominant narrative. Now, it's pretty obvious the ways in which deviant globalization um, challenges that particular narrative. Um, 
you know, rather than creating a flat world, what we've seen is that deviant entrepreneurs are actually interested in creating a lumpy world that create arbitrage opportunities that they can then turn into huge profits for themselves. Um, deviant globalization is not creating, or globalization in general, and therefore deviant globalization is not creating a flat world, but rather creating a world with huge uh, disparities um, where there are actors like the Mend or like the Andragheta that are perfectly happy with that state of affairs and are perfectly happy to challenge states in tacit ways rather than directly. Um, states are withering away, hollowing out in the global south. And the notion that these guys are going to be co-equal partners in some international comedy of, uh, of high-capacity liberal states, all of which are equally functional, is uh, something like a bad joke. So that's probably a pretty obvious way in which deviant globalization contradicts one kind of conventional wisdom about the global south. But I think what's more interesting, actually, is the way that deviant globalization contradicts a different narrative about the global south. Um, and that's a much more dystopian narrative um, that's been put forward by a number of people. And this usually goes under the... You know, the, the person who really kicked off this rhetoric back in the 1990s was the journalist Robert Kaplan in an essay that appeared in The Atlantic called The Coming Anarchy. And he basically depicted a world, uh, a future, where there were two worlds. There was the zone of order, the global north, where things were going to be great. I mean, the Cold War was over, we weren't going to have to worry about the bomb coming down on our head, and we were all going to get rich and we are going to have lots of trade. But then there was the other world, the zone of anarchy. Um, which was, of course, most of the world. And here was a, a situation of failed and collapsing states, um, of horrible new diseases, um, of terrorists, um, of new wars, of genocides. Um, and for much of the 1990s, uh, Kaplan looked like a visionary. People saw what happened in uh, the Balkans. People saw what happened in Rwanda. Um, and the culmination of, uh, of Kaplan's vision seemed to take place on September 11th, 2001, when terrorists sitting in one of these zones of anarchy-type places in Afghanistan managed to successfully plan and launch an attack which killed 3,000 people in Washington, or close to 3,000 people in Washington and New York City. Um, but I think deviant globalization has something important to challenge in this vision. Um, and this might seem surprising. Because the point about deviant globalization is that this is not about disorder. It's actually very much an orderly process that deviant globalization creates. It's just not a liberal order that it's creating. It's creating a very illiberal order. But these are places, the places that, from the point of view of Washington or London, look like ungoverned zones are, in fact, usually very governed. They're just not governed by states or the kinds of people that we like. They're governed by people who have, you know, narrow-minded intre narrow interests. They don't have a notion of the public. They have... Uh, what sometimes gets called traditional values, but are really sort of benighted, backward, horrible prejudices of one sort and another. Um, but these are people who are providing order for their communities. And uh, I, mean, I was just having a conversation with um, Stuart before this, uh, before this talk about Somalia. Uh, Northern Somalia, so-called Puntland, is in many ways one of the better off places in, um, in, uh, in Africa. Uh, you know, they have, a, they have a thriving business, piracy, um, they have a very good infrastructure system, a very w a dense cell phone network. It's probably better than the coverage we get in the 101. Um, uh, you know, they have people who provide order and justice. Uh, you know, it's not very pleasant if you're a woman, and it's not very pleasant if you're an adulterer, and it's not very pleasant if you don't want to worship Muhammad. But, you know, those things aside, there's a certain order there, for sure. Um, and uh, it's wrong to think of these places as a zone of anarchy, or a zone of disorder, or a failed state. These are not failed states. Failed states, the very concept of a failed state, 
falsely implies that the, that the normative order that everybody in the world wants to aspire to is a liberal state like something Max Weber thought up or uh, the Westphalian type of state that's been the dominant model that most Western states have, stri- have striven after for the last 350 years. But that's not what these guys want, and they're providing a very different kind of order, and they're learning to live in a world outside liberal states. So finally, what can we do about all this? Well, I think, again, there might be a couple of choices we often hear. One option that we sometimes hear is that we simply need to shut globalization down. This stuff is horrible, um, and that what we need to do is, uh, is end globalization. Go back to autonomous nation states. Sometimes you hear the Porto Alegre crowd. Um, they fly in annually and complain about, uh, about jet setters. Um, and... Uh, uh, they call for capitalism to be restrained and, in essence, for the plan to return to the kind of long-lost uh, ideal of unitary, homogenous nation-states. Um, there's several things to be said about this. Um, first of all, uh, well, I actually kind of like globalization. I like traveling. I like the things that it brings uh, me, both culturally, economically, and so on. Um, but quite aside from my personal preferences... Um, this is not going to work. And why isn't it going to work? Well, what have we just learned about deviant globalization? Deviant globalization, the deviant entrepreneurs love it when people put up trade barriers. That is how they make a profit. So the more people try to pull back from globalization, the more this is actually going to create an opportunity for exactly the deviant entrepreneurs to be the only people who are benefiting from globalization. And I think a very telling example of this is North Korea. So we think of North Korea as the ultimate kind of the hermit kingdom, the closed society, and it is those things. Does that mean that globalization has no impact on North Korea? Well, people don't have cell phones, and um, although that's starting to come in now. Um, they have famines every 10 years or so. Um, they have incredible oppressiveness. They don't get good quality TV like we do. Um, but they do have some aspects of globalization. So, for example, they're the number one producer globally of counterfeit $100 bills. Um, they're also currently supposed to be the number one uh, source of black market nuclear technology. And uh, they're also a major producer and exporter of opium and heroin. So in other words, when you try to close yourself off, the only kind of globalization you get is the deviant kind. So I just don't think this is going to work. I don't think it's a realistic option. I actually think that trying to pull back is going to make the problem worse rather than better. So the other sort of extreme that people sometimes propose when they hear a, this kind of a lecture is, well, we should just legalize it. Like, you know, get rid of, get rid of, all, this, get rid of all these barriers. These are just silly moralisms. We should, we should just, uh, you, know, um, you know, give up the ghost and let everything, let everything be permissible and, uh, and get rid of this. And I have to say, I have somewhat more sympathy with this kind of a view because at least it's realistic about the economic incentives uh, that underpin the system. But I also think that this is sort of unrealistic, just as unrealistic as the first one is about economics. This is unrealistic about the nature of people's social systems. As, you know, I I quoted Durkheim earlier, and I I have to do it again. Societies are defined in large measure by the set of things they prohibit. And I think most of us, you know, maybe we say, okay, we think marijuana should be legalized or maybe even cocaine and heroin. And, uh, but do really most of us think that parents should be allowed to sell their children as sex slaves? Or that, you know, northerners should be allowed to dump their toxic waste all over the global south? Or that countries should be allowed to completely rape their natural environments just because they happen to have some UN border drawn around this particular plot of land? I think most of us probably feel there have to be limits. And there always will be in any event, even if you as an individual have completely given up all moral limits. Um, 
So I don't think that that's a particularly realistic option. I think the only thing we can do is two things. One is we can make judicious choices. The first thing we have to do, actually, is we have to recognize the structural nature of this phenomenon and not try to run away from it, not try to think it's going to go away or that it's a minor aberration in the system. We have to embrace the fact that this is the reality of the system. And once we do that, this forces us into a series of not very pleasant but at least quite clear choices. We have to decide what do we worry about more. A million people in jail for nonviolent drug offenses or our moral inhibitions about drug use. A bloodbath in northern Mexico or our moral inhibitions about drug use. Um, our desire to see countries in the global south be able to develop any way they want and dumping of toxic chemicals by northern countries and allowing them to do that any way they want. These are not easy choices, actually. Um, I don't want to, you know, I think most of us probably fall one way or another on these things, but these are not easy choices. And the main point I would leave us with at the end of this is that what deviant globalization tells us is that these not easy choices are not going away. We're going to have to confront them and, uh, and stick with them um, in perpetuity. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, first question from Robin Sloan. Where are you? Okay. So, if I was going to get into deviant globalization, which industry should I choose? What's the best balance of risk and reward right now? What's an, e what's an emerging market in this area? And uh, where might I get a, a first mover advantage? Well, first of all, I'd say that um, if you can, if you have the access to the resource, probably the finance side is where the most of the money is. I and mean, we know that bankers make most of the money, right? So, if you can get into that, that's probably the best place to start. Um, I also think it depends on what your personal risk profile is. Uh, you know, if you've got a lot of computer skills, you can become a computer, a computer hacker, and that's probably not very risky to you. Drug dealing tends to have a lot of violence with it, but on the other hand, that's where a lot of the money is. Um, but at the end of the day, if I had to make a choice, if your goal is to make as much money as possible, it's always finance. I see some people leaving for the doors. Let's go sit down here. We <laughs> okay. can Um, I read somewhere somebody describing what you're doing is saying that the um, overall the deviant global economy seems to be growing faster than the legitimate global economy. Is that the case, do you think? I think it is. I mean, I, to go back to what I said earlier, I'm somewhat skeptical um, when I read any particular set of numbers because of the various interests people have in obscuring the truth about those numbers. But all of the anecdotal evidence from you know, thousands of data points collected uh, across the globe suggest that, um, you know, because the infrastructure of globalization is increasing the glo overall integration of the economy completely for uh, originally motivated by legitimate economic opportunities, um, licit economic opportunities, this is just creating a, a greater opportunity for people without moral qualms. If you don't have the regulatory barriers, you're going to grow faster. And these are unregulated markets, primarily, and so they will grow faster. It's, it's, it's basic economic theory, and as I say, it's supported by a thousand anecdotal data points. So there's a lot of investors supporting a legitimate economy. Are there investors supporting this economy? And probably some people here would like to know how to get into it. <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, they're not personally my friends, so I don't, I don't really know. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously financiers are, are, are critical. Um, to They provide startup capital of one sort and another. Um, you know, 
and some of this is uh, at a grassroots level. Um, I have no doubt that some of those monies that people are getting from Grameen Bank are being used to set up illicit industries, of what, things that you know, we consider here in the West to be illicit, whether it's setting up a brothel um, or you know, harvesting something from the forest and bringing it to market in Mumbai or what have you. I mean, these are you know, people... In most of the global South, the distinction between licit and illicit is not particularly relevant. They're just trying to make money and survive any way they can. And if that means that they can make more money in an illicit business, they're going to go that way, generally speaking. We make the distinction they don't. Are you sure of that? I mean, hmm. here's a guy in some sort of the gray economy, informal economy in some right. slum. And uh, there's some opportunity to do laundry, and there's some opportunity to sell drugs. And they look exactly the same to him, or is there other stuff going on? Well, I mean, is, is there a mother in the picture saying something? Is there a daughter in the picture? There may, saying in some something? cases, be moral qualms that are particular to those societies. Um, but my guess is that for most people uh, who come from those kinds of environments, the choice largely hinges on what their alternative opportunities are, and also mm. their personal preferences. If you're a little skinny guy, you probably don't want to become a thug in a gang, right? Um, Whereas if you, know, if you feel like you have other kinds of skills, you might pursue trying to get an education or what have you. But um, if the best options that are available to you are the illicit ones, people are going to pursue those opportunities. Question from J.T. Barnhart. How has all this stuff moved around? Are they deviant shipping organizations, or is it something more parasitic and integrated with legal shipping? Uh, that's a great question. Um, so certainly a lot of this stuff is moving through the intermodal shipping system. Um, and I think you have to look commodity by commodity. Um, so if you're looking at a commodity that is in itself legal, but it may have been harvested illegally, then those things typically, there's some paperwork that's done on the back end to bring these things into the light economy. So a stand of timber in Burma gets cut down. And what you need to do is bring it across the border into China, say that it's Chinese timber, and then you can ship it down to the ports in South China and make it legitimate. And then you load it onto the intermodal shipping system and you ship it off to Europe or North America or you turn it into furniture in China itself. But there, you know, the line, at some point there's this shift over from the illicit to the licit. With actually illegal commodities like drugs, for example, those things sometimes are coming through the, you know, main, uh, you know, the main transportation infrastructure. So there's drug mules who swallow... Uh, swallow, you know, condoms full of cocaine or heroin and bring it through in their body, that's using, obviously, you know, um, regular commercial aircraft to bring the drugs in. There's other people who, like, you know, build submarines and ship those things over. There's people who fly little airplanes, fly-by-night things. There's people who bring it in on suitcases. Um, so it varies a lot. I think that, you know, it depends on what the particular commodity you're looking at is. Is it the case that if you, if the nation say the U.S. trying to keep drugs out, squeezes off one place where it comes in, it just comes in through another, is that what happens? Yeah, well, that metaphor is exactly right. I mean, I refer to this as squeezing the balloon. Um, some of my clients a few years ago, I was trying to explain this exact metaphor to them. I said, you can decide probably where the drugs are going to flow, more or less. Do you want it to come through Mexico or through the Caribbean? But you can't decide whether the drugs are going to flow. They're mm -hmm. going to flow. Um, you can, if you spray crops in Peru, they're going to grow them in Ecuador and Bolivia, right? And you can't spray the whole of the Andes. It's too big, right? And so you, this actually raises really important policy questions. You can decide who's going to benefit and who's going to bleed. And actually, to me, this raises extremely disturbing questions, which is who's actually, in whose interest is it to continue the drug war, actually? I mean, obviously, the prison unions in the state have a large interest in keeping drugs be illegal, and they lobby vociferously to prevent these things. But there's lots of other people um, 
The DEA's budget depends entirely on the war on drugs continuing. You think the head of the DEA wants to see his business ended? Of course he doesn't, right? And so there are... Um, this is classic libertarian theory we're hearing here. Well, that, you know, the, the, the cops got to keep a certain amount of robbers that they don't get, don't get to be cops anymore. I did quote Milton Friedman. The, the slums over time, not all of them, but many of them, become sort of gradually, they get infrastructure, they get, they start to participate in the regular economies and people pay taxes, um, and it, it, it legitimates over time. Mm -hmm. San Francisco made that path mm -hmm. from the you know, pretty horrifying state of the town when the gold rush into it's relatively safe on the streets now. Is that something that goes on in these domains? Sometimes. I mean, uh, certainly sometimes you can see um, marketplaces move from illicit to licit. Um, Examples? Uh, let me think of some. Well, I mean, I, you know, you can think of a little bit of a historical example. Um, uh, I'm going to invoke the Tea Party, but in the actual historical sense here. I apologize. I mean, what, what, what is it that the Tea Parties were protesting? They were protesting a stamp tax. And part of the reason why they were protesting this is because they were bringing in a lot of tea and a lot of rum and a lot of molasses, um, or rather a lot of molasses they were turning into rum. Um, and they were doing this uh, under cover of darkness quite literally, and the British were trying to crack down after the French and Indian War, um, and they were trying to get more revenues out of the system. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a revolutionary uprising, and the U.S. became an independent country, and then these businesses were largely le legitimated. Um, and the people who had been producing rum or, in, you know, importing tea became legitimate entrepreneurs in the new colonial economy of the United States of America. Why did they do that? Why did they become legitimate when they had enjoyed being illegitimate with the Brits? Well, you know, there were still uprisings in the United States in the, in the, late, in the late 18th century, right? I mean, the Whiskey Rebellion was specifically about people not wanting to have the writ of Washington. I mean, the Brits hadn't really been trying to control Western Pennsylvania, but once the United States became an independent country, uh, in the 1890s, they started trying to collect tax on whiskey, and this caused a, a direct uprising. And remind me what happened. How did that play out? Uh, well, it's interesting. Washington, um, President Washington, uh, actually personally led the troops into battle. This is the only time the commander-in-chiefs actually ever personally led the troops I didn't into know battle. That. Um, wow. he, the, now, the battle was never joined. Washington um, showed up in... Uh, uh, in western Pennsylvania, and when he showed up with the cavalry, they decided, the rebels decided to stand down. Did uh, he have moral authority because he was local instead of British, or did he just have troops that were going to actually do it instead of un unhappy redcoats? I think he had, I mean, I, I don't know the story in, uh, in, in great detail, but I think he had a great deal of moral authority. I and mean, Washington was considered the most moral man mm -hmm. in America. And it's also worth noting, however, uh, just to give a sense of the moral compass of the time, that he was the richest man in America, largest slaveholder in America, and one of the tallest men in America. He could do the, it's true. And he could do the broad jump, standing yeah. broad jump, longer than anybody else That's right. at that time in the world. Right. So there. So he was, and he was, he was considered one of the best horsemen. I mean, this, yeah. this mattered in that time period, right? I mean, he was one of the best horsemen in, uh, in America. So he had a whole series of things which were, you know, quasi-aristocratic. Mm -hmm. um, but he was also considered a man of, of great personal authority. And this is one of the ways in which he was able to legitimate uh, a colonial rebellion. Um, so I'm not sure this completely answers your question. No, but there are, interesting. There, there are other examples, though, of people who have um, 
you know, been in one, generated a pile of cash mm -hmm. from an Ill illegitimate business and used that to start up a legitimate business. So this happens all the time. Um, for example, uh, in, in Thailand, or many, many people, young women, leave the villages and go become prostitutes for a few years, and they collect an nest egg, which allows them then to set up a shop or find a husband or set up a business that, you know, being a hairdresser back in the village where they came from. Um, you know, that's, again, not to, you know, uh, discount the uh, tawdriness of the existence they have to go through to raise that pile of cash, but often that can be a capital acquisition strategy. And that's at a grassroots level. Um, you know, there's a lot of businessmen who try to go legitimate once they um, acquire a large enough, you know, illicit empire. Um, there's definitely many people who have done that over time. So this is, you know, something keeps pulling me back. It, yeah, exactly. So the, the, it is, it plays out, it sounds like it. And you were sort of talking about your, in terms of policy, when it's making individual decisions based on each of these separate situations and separate contexts and separate sequences of events over time. You know, is this situation ripe to go legitimate? If you try to do that too early, you get in trouble. But if you're George Washington showing up on a large horse, you might get away with well, it. Well, I think this is a really interesting question, Stuart. And I don't think it's really been studied in those kinds of comparative terms. Um, people have certainly written a lot about particular cases where kind of a, 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 an illicit economy uh, undermines the state to the point where the state becomes really chaotic and, you know, to use the language I think is misleading, it becomes a, what, we, what looks like a failed state. Um, but that's not always the path, right? Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes things go that way and you get into a very chaotic and violent situation. Um, typically, that's actually because the state is trying to respond and then fails catastrophically and then delegitimates itself. And that's where you get failed states. That's the situation that you have in, in Congo today. That's the situation that happened in, uh, in Somalia in the early 1990s. Um, but sometimes it can go the other way, as you're suggesting, where, you know, these illicit, uh, you know, illicit businesses can be a way of raising capital, which can then be translated into legitimate businesses and therefore provide kickstart capital for, you know, other kinds of entrepreneurship that we might not see in as negative a light. You mentioned a few minutes ago your clients. Who exactly are your clients? <laughs> um, well, uh, Monitor 360 is uh, kind of a spin-off of Global Business Network, um, and uh, we focus mainly on security and intelligence clients in the U.S. government. You want to say just a little more? <laughs> I, I work with him in this matter, so it's, you know, that, that, it's not like I'm drawing out something I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, one of the things that's really interesting, and the reason why we created a separate business unit uh, um, apart from GBN, is that some of the people who are most interested in long-range thinking um, are organizations like governments, um, mm -hmm. and particularly uh, the security elements of governments. Um, it's not a coincidence that the first part of, and the only part of the last administration's government that took climate change seriously was the Defense Department. Um, if you really plan to be around for 50, 100, 200 years, mm -hmm. um, then you need to work with organizations that can help you think about those kinds of things. And that's really what our organization is about. It's about helping people think about the future in, in provocative and creative ways. And you know, I, I think that there's, you know, those kinds of organizations are particularly interested in that sort of thing. Yeah, and personally, I like, as I think you do, working with intelligence community and Department of Defense people, because they are highly educated. They're highly oriented to the globe. And I get a sense that they often know more than the State Department people. They, the term national security has mm -hmm. great standing mm -hmm. in the uh, public process. And 
it's gotten blended with the idea of global security mm -hmm. in an interesting way. And in terms of what you're talking about tonight, how, uh, how does those fit each other? I'm not sure I know what you're asking, Stuart, but... Um, Neither do I, that's why I asked it. Um, Global security, national security, what's the relationship? Well, what's it have to do with deviant globalization? Yeah, so, I mean, national security, you know, there's some obvious ways in which the stories I've been telling tonight have particular implications for the nation state as a whole. Um, and the nation state is, you know, border security, um, military affairs could create demand for military interventions in one place or another, particularly if these economies go from snafu to foobar, then, you know, mm -hmm. there may be some demand for... Uh, you know, some kind of military intervention. So those are some of the practical kinds of questions that people in the military get to be interested in. But at a sort of global security level or at a human security level, there's been this merging of, and, you know, this talk is in some sense a, a, a manifestation of that. In the last 15 years, there's been a merging of the discourse of, of development and the discourse of security. And in fact, the, you know, the UN, uh, rather, the World Bank puts out an annual development report uh, along with the UN um, and every year it's on a different topic. I think last year it was on transportation infrastructure. The year before that it was about agriculture. The year before that it was um, climate change. This year it's on development and security. Um, and sort of by definition, when the UN, put, the UN and the World Bank puts out something, that is the conventional wisdom, and that means that that topic has arrived. Well, I, I'd argue that the confluence of security conversations and development conversations um, has, really been, uh, has really become the dominant framework over the last 10 years for thinking about security in the global south. And in fact, all of our counterinsurgency efforts right now in, um, in Afghanistan are rooted in the notion that you can't possibly stabilize the place unless you provide them with some kind of development. Now, we can um, have some debates about whether it's possible for the U.S. from afar to create loyalty uh, in a people for a state that they've never in their entire history had loyalty to. Um, but the notion that that is what the objective ought to be is certainly central to the thinking of a lot of security planners in the United States government today. How about the uh, emerging subject of uh, cyber conflict? Well, that's another one, right? Um, so here's what's really interesting. Um, I mean, bear in mind, I'm one of the co-organizers of the Hackers Conference back <laughs> in the day, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, the hackers have taken all that sort of stuff. And I've been sort of horrified to... Uh, see how that's gone downhill in some respects since my day. Um, I think, you know, there's some people who might think that it's gone way uphill. I don't know. I mean... They're making more money on it, that's then, for sure. Right. It is the, you know, this, this, none of this uh, information should be free stuff. No. Well, it's, I, it's, how do I get into your computer and steal all your power and all your money? Well, it's certainly there's a, lot of commercial, there's a lot of commercial hacking. If it used to be for fun and games or maybe for mischief that was mm. primarily motivating hacking 10, 15 years ago... Um, What's really changed is that the, the center of gravity for the global hacking industry is really focused, as you say, on money-making. But what's really interesting from a security perspective on this is that there's actually been emerging here in the business world of the hacking for profit and hacking for nationalist reasons. Um, and I'll give you a specific a couple of examples. From of where? These are not people in uh, Memphis, I think. Where no, so these are... Um, well, it's always hard to know where exactly, behind which mirror, which particular man is, but mm -hmm. um, certainly the botnets um, that are being used to run denial-of-service attacks uh, in places like um, uh, uh, Georgia during the conflict in two August 2008 or in Estonia in the spring of 2007, those botnets had been around for a while serving commercial spam and running denial-of-service for 
um, extortion reasons, and these were being run apparently by Russian criminal hacker organizations. And then when the wars went, well, it was just a cyber war in the case of Estonia, and it was actually a hot war in the case of Georgia. When these things broke out, actually, the cyber war began before any shots were fired in the case of Georgia. So these same botnets that had been used for criminal purposes were then redeployed to target enemies of the, Soviet, of the Russian state. By command of the Russian state? Well, nobody really knows. Um, nobody knows. Well, somebody knows, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, the, the, you, you follow motivations upstream on things like that. What's, I mean, we had Daniel Suarez here uh, a year ago or so talking about botnets. What's the scale of botnets going on now? Uh, I mean, well, the Zeus botnet, um, which is currently still growing, it's not clear who's commanding it, it hasn't been deployed to do anything yet, um, I think has six million Zombies, zombified computers in it right now. Um, Some of them in, owned by people in this room? I mean, how spread is... Uh, uh, well, you know, six million computers. I don't know how many computers there are in the world, but, you know, it's probably a fairly... You're probably getting close to 1% of all the computers in the world. Um, so just statistically, there's probably several of you that are infected. <laughs> just in case you were thinking this was all about stuff that happens to other people... You know, I think we're going to have to wrap up because okay. this clearly is going to go on a long way. But um, take a little further where you were going with the uh, not just what do we do about it, but you've watched as an historian. Mm -hmm. I'll ask you to do the forbidden thing for historians, which is, you know, take the stuff that you're observing for the last couple of decades and project a couple mm -hmm. decades. And, uh, you know, if you want to do a scenario or two, go for it. But how might this play out? Well, I mean, I think a lot of it depends on how states react to these things. Um, and I think that we've been talking about several different scenarios, I think many of which are likely to play out in different locales. So I think that um, in some places, uh, deviant globalization will provide legitimate opportunities for many people to get out of poverty. Um, and, uh, you know, that's all to the good, whether it means getting out of the country they're in and traveling to somewhere in the global north um, or uh, starting some kind of a deviant business and making some money on it. Um, there's a lot of people who are going to, you know, basically benefit from this kind of behavior. Um, now, there will be lots of people who are outraged by this, whether it's people emptying the Sea of Tuna or chopping down the last stand of old growth in Burma or what have you. But, you know, somebody will have a you know, nice sushi dinner here in San Francisco or a nice hardwood floor, and as they walk across it at night, they probably won't think too much about that. So, you know, um, you know I think that there's going to be benefits of that sort that come out of this. I also think that it's almost inevitable, because it's already happening, that in many cases these illicit flows when they grow, when they, so there's a specific scenario that I think often leads to really bad political outcomes, violent political outcomes, and that is when a new resource stream comes online. Um, so if a new resource stream, which can be uh, targeted by deviant entrepreneurs, comes online, so if there's, it's at, the, it's at the start of a methamphetamine epidemic in a particular country, that typically there's a lot of violence associated with it, because the markets are uncertain at that point. People are trying to carve out spaces. You don't have a dominant player yet. That's typically where you end up with a situation where you have a lot of violence and a lot of, uh, and a lot of unpleasantness. Um, similarly, uh, if there's a sudden change in the nature of the regulations which are being applied to those particular deviant industries, that's also a situation where, because it'll you know, upset the market equilibrium which the players have established, is likely to, particularly if the amount of money involved is very large, lead to a lot of violent conflict around these things, which, if the state is not careful, can actually implode the state. So it can sort of boomerang back on the state that's trying to crack down on this stuff um, and, uh, and actually undermine the state's institutions. I think it's a, it's a not insignificant 
risk that we face in, in Mexico right now. Um, so are you saying do nothing suddenly if you're a state? <laughs> and that's, that's sort of what emerged from that. Well, I, I think that, you know, um, states don't always have autonomy in their choices. Right? I mean, the Mexican state can't, you know, do a deal very easily with the drug lords at this point. I mean, I think that that's probably what's going to end up happening um, uh, in Mexico. That's probably the likely end game in Mexico. But if that's not the end game, um, as long as there's drug demand in this country, there's going to be people who want to bring it north. And, uh, you know, there's drug demand and drug prohibition in this country. Mm -hmm. There's going to be people who want to bring it north, and there's going to be people who are going to fight about that. And as long as the state keeps fighting with them, that's probably going to work out worse for the Mexican state than it's going to work out for the drug dealers. Now, these people may have short lifespans, but there's always somebody else ready to step up to the plate and organize these things. I mean, the one thing we learned from Colombia in the late 1980s and early 1990s is even if you decapitate the capos in these situations, that does not make the situation go away. In fact, it, it, from an intelligence perspective, it often makes the problem worse. Instead of having three guys you need to track, you now have 50 guys you need to track and you don't know who they are. Right. Right? So that actually can often make the problem worse. Um, there was more violence in Colombia in the 1990s than there was in the 1980s when it was run by a few guys. On the other hand, when uh, Peru decapitated uh, the guy who was head of the Shining Path, that was the end of the Shining Path. Well, that's because those guys were traditional political revolutionaries. They wanted to take over the state. So in that case, you can go after... They, these guys don't have an uh, ongoing set of... You know, right. If you can get rid of the ideological entrepreneurs, you can actually win those kinds of wars, potentially. Um, now, you know, of course, there's still all the social oppression in the countryside in, uh, in Peru, which was fomenting this. And now, actually, the Shining Path guys are back, and now they're drug dealers. So, yeah, that keeps happening, doesn't it? <laughs> the IRA, I mean, thing after thing does that. And then presumably something comes after that. But, so, okay, everybody knows about deviant globalization thanks to your book a year from now. And other attention gets paid by governments and so on. And, and that there's this other lumpy world, mm -hmm. non-Friedmanian world, right. and we're aware of it. And we're doing this judicious choosing of various things. Has it changed the game to be aware of it? Because my sense is, for example, um, when Rob Newworth said there's a billion people in slums, mm -hmm. and they're actually not bad people and they're not all that bad off. They're trying to get out of poverty and they're, they're succeeding. And that becomes part of this whole story, by the way, is a whole lot of the world coming up. Are they coming up through a period where this is very tempting, but as things get better, uh, will it then get... Will, will this start to reduce, is there a demographic transition? Like having fewer children, is there less deviant globalization as people get well enough off? Um, Generally, not just the, the rich Robin Hoods. Yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I haven't thought about that. Um, I'm sorry, we're going along because I'm not sure where we go now, and I want to know. Um, my guess is that people get richer, they move from the supply side to the demand side. <laughs> 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 We're done. That's all that. Thank you very much. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.